Welcome to this Uvula Audio presentation of Mission Moonfire by Jack Lancer, Volume 2. Chapter 4, Codename, Moonfire. Geronimo came to with a throbbing head. Wind and spray stung his face, and he seemed to be rocking back and forth on a hard surface. He tried to move his arms, only to discover that his wrists were tied behind him. His ankles, too, were bound. The Apache opened his eyes and saw the night sky, then raised his head painfully. Aye. He was at sea, all right, on the deck of a fast, low-sided motor launch. Light streamed from an open pilot house forward. They were churning through the water at a good fifteen-knot clip. How, Sitting Bull? Geronimo turned slightly. Spice was lying on the deck nearby, propped against a hatch combing and also tied. Sick dog is more like it. Come on, boy. Where's that stoic red man stuff I keep reading about all the time? White man's lies. Shut up, Injun! A vicious kick caught Geronimo on the side. The Apache turned his head and saw a man in seaman's dungarees looming over him, one of the thugs who had met the truck at the dock. That goes for you too, redhead! Geronimo's cold obsidian eyes sized up his target. Suddenly, he swung his legs off the deck and booted the man squarely in the stomach. The thug reeled backwards, almost falling overboard before he grabbed the rail. He was about to charge back at the helpless Apache when a whirring noise drew his eyes skyward. Hey, Max! he yelled. Here comes a copter! A burly man burst out of the deckhouse, aiming a pair of binoculars. Who is it? the first thug asked. Can't tell yet! Max squinted tensely. Geronimo shot a glance at Spice. Your signal? The girl agent nodded. I switched on my watch transmitter after the truck stopped. Max and the guard were too concerned with the helicopter to notice their whispering. The chopper was closing in fast, and the racket of its rotors was growing louder. Suddenly, a brilliant searchlight pinned the launch in its glare. A voice boomed from a loudspeaker on the aircraft. Heave two! It was Christopher Cool's voice. Instead of obeying, Max was bellowing at the helmsman to hold course and speed. Again, the loudspeaker boomed. Heave two! This is your last warning! Max rushed into the pilot house and came out clutching an electric bullhorn. You're not the Navy, Mister! He shouted back. So don't waste your breath giving us orders. We're outside the territorial limit. And don't try firing on us unless you want to splatter these two all over the deck. He gestured to Spice and Geronimo. There was a tense pause. Then a spurt of fire flashed from the copter and a missile streaked down. It struck the water just astern of the speeding launch, setting up a geyser of spray. Another missile followed. They're trying to knock out the propeller, the first thug yelled. Max cursed loudly and dashed back into the deckhouse. This time he came out brandishing a submachine gun. 
Before he could aim it, the brilliant searchlight narrowed to an intense penciled beam that caught Max square in the face. He dropped the gun and clutched his eyes with a scream of pain. Don't try that again, the loudspeaker warned. This beam can blind you permanently. Meanwhile, the launch was losing way, slowing second by second. What's happening? Max bellowed. I cannot see. The helmsman had already run aft and was peering out over the stern rail. Those weren't explosive rockets, he reported. They must have contained some kind of chemical. The stuff is swelling up into a big mass of phosphorescent goo all over our wake. It is following the propeller. Max broke into a fresh volley of oaths. But the launch was now helplessly disabled and was soon lying dead in the water. Twenty minutes later, a Coast Guard cutter came racing to the scene and a boarding party took over the launch. This is piracy, Max stormed as a husky bosun's mate manacled his wrists. Piracy on the high seas! You're dead right, Jack, said the Coast Guardsman with a thoughtful glance at Spice and Geronimo. That's what it amounts to when you're holding kidnapped prisoners. The skipper could hold a court right now and hang you both from the yardarm. Spice and Geronimo were hoisted aboard the sleek, six-place helicopter by rescue sling. Since his fuel was getting low, Dick Curry decided to fly straight back to the teen base at Kennedy. It was after 2 a.m. when the chopper landed. At Control's suggestion, the three young teen agents taxied from the airport to the Howell Mansion on Long Island Sound. This mansion, nestled on a vast walled estate, had been built by a millionaire before he lost his fortune in the stock market. Now it served as a secret teen training center. Chris and Geronimo slept late in one of the spacious bedrooms and came down to Sunday brunch shortly after noon. After eating a hearty breakfast lunch, they strolled outside and joined Spice, who at the moment was climbing out of the swimming pool. You two just up? The pretty red-haired co-ed inquired pertly. Actually, we've been doing yoga exercises since 7 a.m., Chris fibbed. Horizontally, I imagine. Well, the system does require meditation with the eyes closed, he conceded. Spice grinned. Come on, walk me around while I dry off, if that's not too strenuous for you. She slipped on clogs and a white terry cloth wrap, and they started off through the wooded grounds in the warm May sunshine. Any idea what this caper's all about? Chris asked her. Spice shook her head. Practically nothing, except that it's been codenamed Moonfire. Moonfire? Chris was startled. Yes, don't ask me why. Apparently Control suspected the Seraglio restaurant of being the American cover for some sort of spy plot based in Turkey. That's why I was told to get a job there as a dancer. I was supposed to keep my eyes and ears open, but not to risk trying to communicate until you two showed up at the restaurant. Then last night, just before I saw you two... I finally got a break. How so? I overheard Murad powwowing with his head waiter. He said, Don't worry. The scimitar will cut down any American agents who get in our way. So that's why you flashed us that warning in Morse code, Geronimo put in. Yes, it was the only item I had to pass on. But what does it mean? The Apache persisted. And what or who is the scimitar? Spice gave a helpless shrug. I have no idea. A black and rust Doberman Pinscher guard dog, patrolling near the wall, paused to glare at the three teen agents. Glossy coated with a steel spring body, it looked mean, intelligent, and powerful enough to bring down a bull. 
Nice doggy, said Spice. Let the nice doggy be, said Chris. He related his own adventure the night before. How do you suppose Maraud found out your name? Geronimo mused. Easy. The doorman saw us drive up. They probably checked the car after they spotted Spice's warning signal and got my name off one of the textbooks in the back seat. How about that bit with the Turkish flag? asked Spice. Chris frowned thoughtfully. I have a hunch the water pipe gas was some sort of psychochemical that leaves the victim wide open to hypnotic suggestion. When Murad pointed to the flag and said the moon is on fire, he was just checking to make sure the chemical had taken effect. And then, while you were blacked out, the hypnotizing tape was planted in your car in order to worm all possible information out of you. Right, Chris nodded. The masked man probably trailed me all the way from the restaurant to waylay me after I responded to the hypnotist's orders. After he'd pumped me for information, he probably intended to kill me and leave my body there by the roadside, with nothing to connect the job back to the seraglio. While the three young people were chatting, Mr. and Mrs. Howell strolled over to join them. The couple, both retired CIA agents, had been given charge of the teen training estate. Their own two college-age children provided good cover, since the trainees who came to the estate could be explained as their classmates and weekend guests. I gather you three had quite a swinging time last night, said Mr. Howell, a tall, gaunt man with a jolly air. By the way, you'll all be given appointments with Q for debriefing tomorrow. Mrs. Howell was carrying her pet lapdog, a pop-eyed, nervous little Japanese spaniel, Here's something I might as well turn over to you, sir, Chris said, fishing in his pocket. He pulled out the circlet of worry beads, which he had found in Marad's desk drawer. Well, that's odd. Two or three loose beads like these were found in the pocket of that masked man you captured. Hal reached out to examine the beads. As he did so, the jittery little spaniel escaped from the mistress's arms and leaped to the ground, knocking the circlet from Mr. Hal's fingers. The bees came unstrung. Chris and Geronimo stooped to gather them up. Both started in surprise as the tiny spaniel gave a sudden vicious growl. The next moment it bounded off across the lawn and hurled itself, bare-teethed, at the big Doberman. Chapter 5. Dr. Death Fuji, come back! Mrs. Howell screamed. The pug-faced little spaniel had sunk its teeth into the Doberman's throat and was hanging on like a pit bull. The Doberman seemed too astonished to defend itself, but he recovered with a snarl and shook the spaniel loose. Now the Doberman lunged for the kill, fangs bared, but the spaniel dodged like lightning, snapping savagely at the bigger dog's flanks. Chris was about to dart forward and snatch the spaniel away when Hal grabbed his arm. Don't try it, my boy. Once a Doberman's blood is up, he just as soon eat you as look at you. Howell drew out a zip pen and fired an anesthetic barb, which put the spaniel to sleep instantly. The Doberman sniffed the limp form and, at Howell's command, backed stiffly away. Howell picked up the unconscious pet and handed it to his wife. I think you'd better take Fuji to the vet, my dear. The poor creature seems to be rabid. I don't think so, sir. Chris spoke up. I have a hunch he swallowed one of those worry beads. One of the worry beads? 
Hal echoed in surprise. He looked at the curious blue-green pellets which the teen agents handed him. Chris told him how Marad had tried to reach the beads during their struggle in the office, and how the masked man had popped something into his mouth just before his savage scimitar attack. The elder agent's forehead puckered in a frown. Are you suggesting these beads contain some sort of a drug? Right, maybe some chemical that turns the taker into a reckless killer and sensitive to pain. My, that's an interesting hunch. I'll have these analyzed then. The bees were dispatched to the laboratory at Teen Control. Before the end of the afternoon, Chris's hunch was verified. They contained a rare drug which would drive a person into a savage frenzy. Howell arranged for a car and driver to take the boys back to New Jersey so Chris could pick up his Jaguar. The bullet-shaped sports coupe was still in the roadside woods. After a brief search, the teen agents also found a black Sunbeam Tiger convertible parked among some trees not very far away. Evidently, it was the car in which the masked man had trailed Chris. It was equipped with a two-way radio. The driver who had brought them from Long Island promised to have the car checked out. That evening, back on campus at Kingston, Chris received a signal buzz on his wristwatch communicator. He checked in with control over the Jaguar's radio telephone. You and Kingston, too, will report to me at 0900 hours tomorrow, Q told him, and bring your bags packed for overseas assignment. Understood. Chris hung up and passed the word to his buddy. At 0900 tomorrow, don't forget... Wouldn't dream of it, old boy. We're being posted out to the colonies, I presume. Indubitably, I should think, but have no fear. Q will be on the quarter deck of his rowboat in Central Park, keeping the sea lanes open. Promptly at three minutes to nine Monday morning, Chris's Jaguar pulled into the service entrance of Luxury Motors on Broadway near 56th Street in New York. There was the usual rigmarole of turning the sports car over to a mechanic and stepping into the service manager's office to discuss a tune-up job. Then the boys ascended by a secret elevator to the top floor into a hidden world of clattering teletypes, code machines, and special projects gimmickry. The throbbing heart of Q's far-flung spiderweb lay beyond a flush-paneled door at the end of a long corridor. The green light flashed and his barking voice summoned them inside. A half-empty bottle of milk, solace for Q's nagging ulcer, stood on his desk beside the TV monitor screen. That was a bad sign. Q stood glaring out the window, legs spread, hands clasped behind his back in an Admiral Nelson pose. Above the navy blue blazer, he was wearing his usual beat-up yachting cap. In fact, neither Chris nor Geronimo had ever seen him without it. Chris gave a slight cough. Kingston 1 and 2 reporting, sir. Q swung around peevishly. An unlit pipe was sticking out of his gray-blonde whiskers. The glaring and the pipe stem chewing went on for a while longer before he grumbled. Bad judgment, cool, on that business at sea Saturday night. How so, sir? The launch was almost certainly headed for a rendezvous with a freighter out of New York. The SS Aristides, bound for Turkey, should have held off till the rendezvous was made. Then the ship could have been stopped and searched. Might have found something interesting. What was her registry? American? No, Creek. Might have created an international incident, sir. Might not have? 
Hugh glared, snorted, and poured himself a swig of milk, wiping the dribble off his whiskers. He walked around to his desk chair. Sit down. The boy sat. Having cleared the air with his preliminary griping ritual, Hugh was now ready to get down to business. Have you heard about that American-built dam in India being dynamited yesterday? He tamped his pipe with Queen's Navy mixture from an oilskin pouch. The stuff always smelled like burning ropes. Both boys said, Yes, sir. Latest in a whole series of outrages. Sabotage, assassinations, terror stuff all over the world. And they all bear the same stamp. Q paused to light his pipe before going on. In every case, as the saboteur or assassin flings his bomb, or whatever, he shouts, The moon is on fire, usually in Turkish. Like the masked man did Saturday night, Chris murmured. Q nodded. What's more, the trail always seems to lead back to Turkey. Now, as you know, Turkey is one of our staunchest allies, finest people in the world. But the conclusion seems inescapable that something rotten is cooking there, unknown to the Turkish authorities. And this setup at the Seraglio restaurant was part of the plot? Chris asked. Definitely. We're sure it was the American residentura for the assassin's gang, and that Murad was the local agent. That call over your radio telephone, by the way, came from the Seraglio. We've rounded up everyone connected with the place, but so far none has talked. Has intelligence any leads other than the Seraglio? Geronimo asked. Just one. Have you ever heard of Dr. Hermann Tote? The name is spelled T-O-D, but in German it's pronounced Tote, as in Tote that bell. A small bell rang in Chris's brain. Wasn't he some sort of Nazi bigwig? Quite right. He was Hitler's mad genius, a fanatical but brilliant scientist who worked on all sorts of Nazi war projects. He had a hand in the V-2 rockets, helped design the revolutionary Type XXJ electroboats, and performed numerous fiendish experiments on concentration camp prisoners. Q paused. Tote means death in German, you see, so eventually he became known as Dr. Death to Allied intelligence. The OSS had him marked as a prime target and later tried to hunt him down for the war crimes trials, but he disappeared after German surrender. What happened to him? Chris asked. Quite a lot of people would like to know the answer to that question, Q replied. Some thought he was behind Toad, the deadly secret organization that arose after the war, that it may even have got its name from him. Later, evidence suggested that he might have been captured by the Russians. Whatever the answer is, our intelligence closed the books on him a long time ago. Until recently, that is. Q fiddled with his lighter and got his pipe going again and continued. Two weeks ago, the CIA got a report that Dr. Death had been seen alive in Istanbul, Turkey, at the shop of a rug and antique dealer named Terhan Hamid. Now the theory is that Tote may be behind this assassin saboteur ring. It's been a long time since World War II, sir, Chris remarked. Could he still even be recognized? Excellent point, Hugh conceded. Tote will be a very old man now. However, his facial features were highly distinctive, so much so that only plastic surgery could change them. Q buzzed central files and asked for Tote's picture. Within seconds, the retrieval computer had plucked it out 
and was transmitting it over the TV monitor screen. The two teenagers came over to the desk to study it. Aye, Geronimo muttered. He fits his name all right. The news photo showed a face with a huge bulging forehead and a tiny pointed chin. In between were glowing eyes set deep in their skull sockets and a small pug nose. Death warmed over, said Chris, but only a few degrees above absolute zero. Quite so. Q settled back with the smug air of a chess player who has just scored checkmate. Your job is to find him. Before leaving, the boys spent an instructive hour in special projects, sometimes known as the Department of Dirty Tricks, with Pomeroy, teen's fussy, bald-headed little technical gnome. He showed the boys a small red metal box. I call it the mouse trap," said Pomeroy. Quite a neat little device, if I do say so. What's it for? Chris asked. To alert you if an enemy searches your luggage or belongings while you're away from your hotel room. The device is set by pushing on this little button. After that, if anybody picks up the box, he'll trigger an alarm buzz on your wristwatches. What if he opens the box? Chris reached out to try. I wouldn't do that. A needle pops out and jabs him in the thumb. Contains an anesthetic drug that could put a person to sleep for at least 12 hours. But what if I were forced to open it? Chris asked. Good question. On the side of the case here is another button, practically invisible. It's the neutralizer. Incidentally, once set off, the alarm signal changes to a shriller buzz. Suppose the thief just carries the box away with him, said Geronimo. In that case, the motion would trigger off a steady R signal. And so on. Furthermore, Pomeroy rubbed his hands together. The box has a false bottom containing an electronic bug, so if the thief carried it back to enemy headquarters, you'd be able to eavesdrop on everything everybody said. The boys congratulated Pomeroy, who glowed with modest satisfaction. Now then, a couple of other small gimmicks. He held up two plastic encased objects, one green, one yellow, which looked like rifle cartridges. These are grenades, which will carry an ejection sheath inside your sleeves. To fire them, Pomeroy explained the wearer had only to press his upper arm tightly against his side while raising his arm. Very neat, said Geronimo, but what sort of grenades are they? Pomeroy permitted himself a little chuckle. The green one I call my lights out model. It's designed to disrupt an enemy spy post. The grenade releases a gas which instantly corrodes and shorts out all electrical circuitry. And the yellow one? Chris asked. This I call the curfew model. It explodes with a loud report, releasing a dense anesthetic vapor. The stuff is absorbed through the tissues by osmosis. The slightest contact with the skin will put a person instantly to sleep. Pomeroy checked over the boys' regular equipment, including their rocket hopper shoes, and sent them on their way to logistics. This department took care of all transport arrangements and contact details at the point of destination. The teenagers also were instructed that on arrival in Turkey, they were to go at once to the Suleiman Travel Agency. This was the local CIA cover with which they were to cooperate. That evening, Chris and Geronimo boarded a Pan American Airways jetliner at Kennedy Airport and settled back. 
It was Tuesday when they landed at the Yetzelkoy Airport outside Istanbul, the ancient capital of the Turkish Empire. As the boys started out of the terminal, they noticed a tough-looking, hook-nosed man standing near the glass exit doors. He wore a cap pulled low over his forehead. Geronimo's elbow nudged Chris in the ribs. Look. The man was fingering a circlet of blue-green worry beads. Chapter 6. Mouse Bait Going through the doorway, Chris glanced back at the man with the worry beads, but the heavy-bearded face showed no sign of recognition. Do you think those beads were the same as Maraud's? The Apache asked. Don't know, Chris replied. I need a closer look to be sure, but they seem to be the same color. The boys dared not turn around, knowing they were visible to the man through the glass doors. As they hesitated, a taxi pulled up in front of the terminal from the nearby cab stand. The driver glanced at the two youths, waiting for them to make up their minds. Chris and Geronimo picked up their suitcases. Just then, a man emerged from the parking lot and hurried toward them. He wore a chauffeur's cap and had a large white badge stuck to his coat lapel. You gentlemen are Mr. Cool and Mr. Johnson, he inquired. His face looked like hewn teakwood with a big black mustache smeared across his upper lip. Smiling at his Turkish Brooklyn accent, Chris saw that his lapel badge read Suleiman Travel Agency. That's right. The man grinned cheerfully, dopped his cap and slapped it back on his head and thrust out a pair of brawny hands to take the boy's bags. I'm Mustafa. Mr. Vogel sent me to pick you his fellows up. Chris and Geronimo exchanged dubious glances. Their instructions had said nothing about being met at the airport, but Mustafa was already starting off toting the two heavy suitcases as lightly as if they were made of feathers. The Apache shrugged and the two boys hurried to catch up with him. How's the golden horn? Chris asked. As beautiful as they say? Mustafa's eyelid drooped in a fleeting wink. Wait till you see it from the Galata Bridge. It's a real life fool. So far, so good. Galata Bridge was the correct response to Chris's password question. We, uh, we didn't expect to be picked up, said Chris, lowering his voice. How come? Mustafa stopped at a battered green Mercedes, tucked one bag deftly under his arm, and unlocked the car trunk. We've been having a little trouble, you see. So Mr. Vogel, he figures it might be better if yous didn't come to the office. He'll explain when he meets yous. I see. Chris looked thoughtfully at Geronimo. There was a man back there, just inside the door. The Apache said to Mustafa, hook-nosed. He was fingering some worry beads. The guide finished stowing the luggage and swung around sharply. What about him? Why was he watching us? Yeah, not you mentioned it he was. Mustafa's gnarled brown face had taken on a worried frown. He muttered something in Turkish and then said, Come on, we better scram. Wait, don't lock the trunk, Chris exclaimed. He got the mousetrap out of the suitcase and wrapped the little red box in a page of a Turkish newspaper, which was lying on the front seat of the Mercedes. What you's going to do? Mustafa asked. Bait a little trap for a hook-nosed mouse. You wait here please. Come on, Jerry. When we go by this joker with the worry beats, I'll say loudly I intend to leave this package at the ticket counter and that someone will come by in a few minutes to pick it up. Understand? Geronimo nodded. 
But to the boy's surprise, the hook-nosed man was gone. Chris decided to go ahead with his plan anyway. Don't start looking all over for him, he warned his buddy. This guy may still be around somewhere near enough to see us. The Apache grinned. Do I look that stupid? You want the truth? Watch that forked tongue, white man. At the Pan American counter, Chris showed his ticket stub and spoke to the clerk. May I leave this package here, please? A friend of mine will come by to pick it up in a little while. Certainly. I'll put it under the counter. As he handed the box over, Chris pressed the cocking button with his finger through the newspaper wrapping. Then the boys hurried back to the car in the parking lot. Mustafa swung the Mercedes down the driveway that curved past the terminal building and zoomed out onto the open highway. Chris saw him watching the rearview mirror. Anybody on our tail? Can't tell us for sure with all this traffic, but I think's not. Where did you learn to speak English so well? Geronimo asked. Me? Mustafa chuckled. I used to drive a hack in Brooklyn. Later on, I run a grocery store in Gary, Indiana. What brought you back here? Chris asked. Pete Vogel. He's a great guy. I fought with the Turkish Brigade in Korea, see? That's where I first meet him. Then I meet him again a long time ago, later in Chicago, and he asked me if I want to come back to old country and work for him. So I says, sure. The boys gave a start as their wristwatches began to buzz. Mustafa glanced at them in the mirror. What's up? Chris grinned. The mouse has just taken the bait, I hope. But was it the hook-nosed man or somebody else? Or was the airline clerk merely moving the package on the shelf? A voice came through suddenly. Tesekur edarim. Turkish for thank you as if the package had just been handed over to somebody. The buzz changed immediately to the R signal. Whoever had taken the box must be carrying it away from the counter. The boy's eyes met tensely. Now comes the ticklish part, Geronimo said. What happens if he unwraps the package and tries to open the box right there at the airport? Well, he'll get jabbed with a needle and conk out. And suppose the police check up on where the box came from. Why should they? They won't know the box did it. They will if somebody else picks it up and gets jabbed, Geronimo pointed out. You Indians worry too much. More likely, they'll search his pockets for identification. Maybe we can hear them read out his name. But the did did signal continued, unbroken by the shrill buzz that would have meant the box had been opened. Only one thing was certain. An enemy agent, either the hook-nosed man or somebody else, must have been observing them at the airport. Mustafa continued driving on down the Londra Highway, once the route of the ancient crusaders. In 20 minutes they were approaching the Tokapi Gate and the massive crumbling stone walls around the western edge of the city. Built centuries ago by the East Roman emperors when Istanbul was called Constantinople, the walls had been blitzed by Turkish cannon in 1453 when the city fell to Sultan Mehmet the Conqueror. Quite a sight, huh? Chris murmured. With its skyline of rounded mosques and slender spear-like minarets, the city spread out among its seven hills above the blue waters of the Bosporus, the strait that splits Europe from Asia. To the south stretched the beautiful Sea of Mamara. To the north lay the famous branching waterway called the Golden Horn. Huddled slums mingled with splendid modernistic hotels. To Chris's romantic mind, the whole fantastic picture reeked of foreign intrigue. 
They drove into the old section of the city, down the avenue called Milet Cadesi. At last, the Mercedes drew up outside the splendid dome of St. Sophia. You was going there, boys, said Mustafa. Vogel, he's inside waiting for yous. Tall guy, not much hair, horn-rimmed glasses. He's wearing a gray suit and blue tie. What about you? Chris asked. I'll take yous suitcase to start to the hotel. We got yous reservations at the Aladdin. Nice place. It's over in the Bear Glue District, the newer part of the city across the Golden Horn. Any taxi driver can take yous there. With a wave, he drove off into the snarling traffic. The boys walked into St. Sophia, framed by its four-needle minarets. The great dome building, once a church, later a mosque, was now a museum of Christian and Muslim art. Inside, beneath the great golden vault, tourists and sightseers were drifting about. The two agents paused to look for their contact. Their wristwatches were still clicking out the R signal from the mousetrap. Chris soon spotted Vogel's tall figure. He was with a knot of people, listening to a guide describe the jewel-like mosaics. That signal's bound to attract attention, Jerry, Chris muttered. You stay here and listen. I'll go get Vogel. Turning off his own watch, Chris walked over and joined the group. He wormed his way closer to the gray-suited man with the glasses. This is the first place I've visited in Istanbul, Chris remarked chattily. Haven't seen the Golden Horn yet. Is it beautiful? Vogel gave him a slow, careful look. Very much so, especially from the Galata Bridge. The older agent's eyes roamed uneasily over the crowd and then returned to Chris. Be careful, he muttered under his breath. I'm afraid your Moonfire mission is already in trouble.